And let's turn to John 15, if you will. Sorry, 17. We're in John 15 thematically. Is anybody having much success memorizing John 15? Does anybody have the first verse yet? We have uh, uh, set up, uh, you can go to it on our website, something that's an app for all you techies called Scripture Typer. You've got to pay a little bit of money, but in my uh, premarital counseling this past week, uh, or two weeks ago, I had mentioned this because some that I'm, I'm taking through premarital right now we're memorizing in Romans uh, chapter 12, and so they started utilizing it, loved it, absolutely loved it. And so I encourage you, go to the website, find the link, load it up, and let's memorize John 15 together. Let's make this a theme that has power and that we can look back at the end of the year and we can say, look at what God has taught us. Look at the value of what we have strived towards in our thoughts, in our devotion, and in our action. And there will be much fruit. This morning, as we continue in studying the Gospel of John, we're in chapter 17, and today's sermon title is Any Last Words. And uh, that kind of is reminiscent of some very scary movies or stories, right? Um, It's not meant to be. It's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to make you think of uh, someone on their deathbed. It's, It's just this idea of thinking through what would be your last words if you were facing a crisis or you were saying goodbye to somebody or you had one of those moments where you were speaking or preaching maybe and they say that they forget everything you say except the last 30 seconds anyway when you preach. So let's see what I finish up with today. What would you say, what would be your last words in those moments? There's a, uh, a wonderful story of prayer and by the way today is in essence all about prayer. It's all about prayer. And please, I encourage you, the challenge this morning will be for you to completely check out. Because prayer is a battle. It is an absolute battle. And last week I asked, you know, do you get up every day and ask the Lord to be the strength of your day and and that you're dependent on Him? I heard back from a couple people this week saying, yes, I do. Uh, And we challenged you that I would ask you that same question this week. So, was this week any different for you? Did you wake every day saying, Lord, be my dependence, be my source. Let me abide in you. I did better this week. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I did better. And I stopped thinking about how my back was stiff. I stopped thinking about letting the dog out. Uh, The dog never got to go out the entire week. Big problem. Um... But we had, a, we had a fantastic, I had a fantastic time contemplating that as I was preparing the message this week. I want to take you halfway around the world. I want to take you to a place called Jerusalem where a very unique uh, event happened in my life, but it wasn't necessarily about me. It was the opportunity to observe someone that was Nada's age. Now, Nada, you're, you just turned 17, 18, 28? What's, it's 16, right? 17. She just turned 17. I had to cover all the bases from younger to older. She just turned 17. And uh, this young girl that went on a trip, I I was blessed to take uh, 20 people over on a missions trip. And one of the individuals that went with us, a student, a a child of one of our missionaries at the current, or, or the former church I was at, and 
we had a, a complete diagram set up for the day that we were going to be at Temple Mount Plaza. What you're looking at is what's called Western Wall Plaza, Temple Mount Plaza. And you can see the Western Wall there, and that's where uh, it is the most sacred area for prayer for Jews. It is the closest place that they can access that's of a public setting where they can be as close as possible to where the Holy of Holies was. And so on any given day, you'll see individuals that go in. And so you can see the fence line uh, demarcation. You can see the little white umbrella. From that point, when you walk in, you have to be quiet. You have to be uh, observational. But outside of that point, there's tourists that are gathered, and you can see all of that going on. And you see those little arches uh, over here, right in this corner. You see these arches? So right around here is a bank of pay phones. I don't know if they're there anymore because this was before uh, the, uh, the proliferation of cell phones. But the plan was this. We were going to be at Temple Mount at a particular point in time, and the students were going to run to those pay phones, call their parents, because webcams had just started. And so the parents were going to jump on their computers, and we were going to hold up a big sign that said Faith Community Youth Group, and parents could see us in real time. It was going to be very exciting. So we had this young lady, Erica Van Kirk. Her parents are missionaries to the Tahumari Indians in Mexico. Now, Tahumari Indians don't live in Mexico. Well, there might be two or three that I don't know about, but they actually live in the recesses of the hill country of Mexico. And many people don't think of this in, in the sense that there are, are, are natives that live in very remote areas of Mexico. Uh, the Tahumari are actually famous. They were winning marathons because there was no technology. There was no transportation. So if they needed something from town, they just ran. And they ran a long way to get whatever they needed. And so they had this built-up conditioning, and so they would enter these world marathons and win them. That's their kind of claim to fame. Well, we had missionaries that were working with the Tahumari, and Erica was the daughter of them. And so the moment comes where we're going to call our parents and I can see Erica kind of turning around, and she's not going to the phones. And I thought, I wonder why that's happening. I wonder why she's not going. You know, what's, what's happening there? What's going on? Let's turn to our text this morning. John 17, 1 through 5. It says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's a great quote by E.M. Bounds that I want to share with you. I already quote, you know, mentioned him this morning. Let's look at some of the depth and brevity of uh, what God has shared with this man, this great man of prayer, and how he shares it with us. This is just one quote from his, one of his books where he says, Christ made disciples and kept them disciples through prayer. I would think E.M. is speaking about the high priestly prayer that we're going to go over the next three weeks. He then says this, His twelve disciples were much impressed by his praying. 
Never man prayed like this man. How different his praying from the cold, proud, self-righteous praying which they heard and saw in the streets, in the synagogues, and the temples. What would be our last words? Jesus has spent time with the disciples. He's talking with them. And now in his last words of this great discourse, he prays, he prays, he prays. I think we struggle with the area of prayer because we're somewhat removed from God. In a physical and tangible sense, we have to strive to have a mental, emotional, spiritual discipline that seeks after God for all things pertaining to life and godliness. So how do we get that discipline? I believe, and hold on to this, write it down, wake up, stop tuning out, listen carefully, to these words. We need to experience the freedom of prayer so that we might be free to pray. We need to experience the freedom of prayer so that we might be free to pray. In my study of prayer, and I've preached on it three times since I've been here, in my own life, I think the greatest value that I've come to and the greatest challenge I've come to is that I need to be free to pray. Whether you're an individual that doesn't know necessarily how to pray, whether you're someone who feels that, that God would not listen to your prayers, whether it's the individual who's been praying their entire life and they're in a prayer meeting and they simply say, well, I always pray, so I'm not going to pray this time. Right? We struggle with the freedom just to pray. Just spirit-led prayer. And think about when you're offered the opportunity to pray, think about those chances where you can pray in public and the, uh, whatever that feeling, the tightening of the chest, the, the imagery of utter failure that you picture in your mind, the, uh, the practice of false humility. Oh, I don't dare pray because I would seem proud if I prayed. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said pray. He said pray again. And he said, pray again. There's freedom when we pray. But the challenge is to feel free to pray. So this morning, think about that as we look at Jesus' prayer. Any last words? Number one, let's start with this. Jesus prays for himself. I've heard from multiple people in the past few weeks, and, and probably throughout my lifetime, that they really don't pray for themselves. They don't feel comfortable doing that. It's okay to pray for others, and so they do not have a, what? A freedom to pray for themselves. Do you see that? If you struggle with praying for yourself, there's something that's blocking you from doing that. Maybe it's misinformation. Maybe it's a, a lack of understanding of prayer. Maybe it was you never saw the answers to prayer that you were hoping for. So you just kind of gave up thinking, well, God's not really listening to my prayers. I'm, maybe I'm not righteous enough. Maybe I don't have the right number. You know, who knows what's going on? Jesus prays for himself is the title of what we're looking at this morning. Number one, the position of prayer. When we look at the position of prayer, as we start in verse one, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and what this means is that if you go all the way back to chapter 13, Jesus starts on this discourse. He's talking with the disciples. It's either taking place in the upper room during the Last Supper or somewhere in between that point and when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not in the Garden yet. And so he has this big discourse where he's 
He's investing into the disciples because these will be his last words with them. And so now he spent all this time encouraging them, telling them, giving them instruction. And now what does he do? Now he prays. Now he prays. But this has been his focus till this moment. And now to finish up this great discourse, he starts praying. And in verse 1, we see his position. So it says when Jesus had spoken these words, he's relating back to all that goes back all the way to chapter 13 that he had shared with the disciples. Then what does he do? He lifted his eyes to heaven. My daughter loves to challenge us on this issue of closing our eyes while we pray. Have any of you done that with your parents or your Sunday school teacher? You know, you just wanted to see what they would say. You know, why is it closing your eyes when we pray is not in the Bible? They're right. They're absolutely right. Jesus lifted his eyes. He didn't even close his eyes. But have you ever wondered if you were to do that, which would be really awkward, right? I'll just tell you right now, I don't have the freedom to pray with my eyes open. I'm not there yet because of the tradition I've been taught, which isn't necessarily a biblical tradition. Now, I can understand why we do it because as, uh, as and this is a beautiful picture, as we were uh, in our installation service, uh, the leaders of the church laid their hands on us, on our family, and I have a picture of this. That some, I don't know who took it, but it's a great picture. And uh, all of us have our heads down, and, and we're all praying. It's a very serious, solemn moment. And then, and then here's Dylan. Like this. And now we're having dinner the other night. And, uh, and so we're praying, and the second the prayer's over, Dylan yells at Jericho, you had your eyes open the whole time. And she said, how did you know? You had your eyes open, she said. And he said, I only had my eyes open to see if you would have your eyes open. And, and I'm like, okay, you guys are ho- totally missing the point here. But have you ever been in this point of if you had your eyes open, where is God? What are you looking at? And so that's why we have probably instituted that pattern, right? Is that to focus on all that we would be seeing, but then stay focused to God, the Father, in our prayers, would be a little difficult. But Jesus lifted his eyes where? To heaven. Have you ever wondered if you kept your eyes open, where is God? You know, I don't know necessarily where heaven is, but I see Jesus' pattern here, and he lifts his eyes. So somewhere up there, above those speakers probably, all right, is, is kind of what Jesus was doing in, in paying attention to the Father. Isn't it fascinating that he looked somewhere? Being God, he looked somewhere to communicate with the Father. So we see, number one, in the position of prayer, Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. He's praying to the Father. Have you ever wondered who you're supposed to be praying to? You know, there's a lot of different faiths out there, a lot of different religions, and they pray to a lot of different people. Jesus says to the disciples, this then is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, right? So he's instructing specifically, pray to the Father. Let me help you with this. I don't see a lot of places where we're supposed to be praying to Jesus. Jesus never asked that we would pray to him, although his situation while on earth was a little different. We're never asked to pray to the Spirit. We are are asked to pray to in the Spirit, and that the Spirit will be interceding for us. And Jesus' pattern of prayer was always to pray to whom? The Father. As we see different pictures of the throne room, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, the Father is sitting there and the 
prayers of the saints are going up to the Father. So this should be the starting focus as you're looking at Jesus praying for Himself. He lifts His eyes to heaven and He is praying to the Father. His prayers were never contrived. And you heard this from E.M. Bounds that if you think about the passage where in Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about prayer and how the Pharisees and Sadducees prayed incorrectly. And this is where He gives the instruction, go into your closet, go into your prayer closet. Don't stand on the corners and, and say your prayers loudly so that you may be heard. Now this is where we get into this false sense of humility where we're at prayer meetings and, and people are like, well, I don't want to come across like a Pharisee or Sadducee. You are if you're going to stand in the middle of the Sun Valley Mall and start praying real loudly. Okay, that would be the equivalence of what Jesus is addressing. But do not take some instruction about how to pray properly and let that dampen how we should pray collectively as God's people. In our last words, it is okay to pray for ourselves. Jesus has done this himself. So his prayers are not one of a contrived attitude. He's often alone. He has a tone of humility when he's praying. So the position of prayer is important when we pray. Moving on, the next point this morning when we're looking out of this concept of Jesus prays for himself is he says, glorify the Son. See it again in verse 1, and it actually boils over into the rest of the passage as well. But he says this, Father, the hour has come. What hour is that? It is the time for his death and resurrection. It is the culmination of his work. It's why he came to earth. It is here. It is upon me. These are his last words. And so what does he say? The hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. What is Jesus asking? What is he asking? First of all, Jesus presents a request. Do you see it? He is asked that he would be glorified. Jesus prays for himself. It's one of the few times we see in Scripture where he does so. He is requesting that the Father do something to exalt the Son. But let's unpack this. What exactly is being asked? When Jesus says glorify the Son, he is asking for an entitlement that is only befitting to God. If you were to look in Isaiah and I've got the passages here. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to quote the 42 passage. Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord. Now this is the Father. This is Jehovah speaking. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. So when Jesus is saying this, when He's stipulating glorify the Son, He is asking for that same glory that is reserved for the Father. He is not in contradiction to the Father. He's asking a special request because He's given up everything. Philippians 2 speaks about how Christ set aside His rights as God. He came and humbled Himself and took on the form of man so that what? So that we might be able to relate to Him. The challenge in that, my friends, is that sometimes we lose track that Jesus is truly God. 
Because we can relate so easily to Him as man. And so Jesus is almost pining for. He's almost uh, demonstrating His great desire to go back to His pre-incarnate self. He's praying to the Father a request that is only attributed to God. And why does He request this? It's a request that glorifies the Father. Because it is the Father's work. It is the Father's miraculous work. And so as Jesus does so, as He requests something for Himself, there's a caveat here. There's an addition here. And that is, I request that You glorify Me, Father, so that what? I may what? Glorify You. So we've talked about this, that when Jesus says over and over, over the past, say, three chapters in this discourse, He says no less than four times to the disciples and to you and I, ask, ask in My name or ask in My Father's name and it will be what? Be given to you. So how do we ask? Pastor, I feel guilty. I want to go on vacation to uh, the Caribbean. You should. Don't pray for that. No, I'm just kidding. What you should be praying for are those things where God can utilize you and if you feel like you don't have the sufficient ability to do it, ask. Ask. As the worship team stands up here, I hope they ask God to give them the power to do what they needed to do to play. That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Why? So that God may be glorified. Do you make the connection? Even Christ asks which is a mind-blower, isn't it? It is the demonstration of submission by God to God. So why does this happen? He's speaking of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension. To request for Himself that He would be glorified ultimately brings the Father glory And as he does so, when he's talking about glorifying the Father, he's asking a request that precedes what he's about to go through. Have you been there? Have you felt the freedom when you're facing a a challenge to go before God and request, God, give me what I need. Raise me up above what I have to offer so that I can glorify You. Jesus is here in His human form. He specifically says, I can do nothing without the Father. And so as He suffers, as He goes through the death and the resurrection and the ascension, all of this He does by the power of the Father through the Holy Spirit. And so as He says these words, there's more to it than just His personal interaction. The disciples are hearing these words. He's close to them. And He says so specifically so that they can understand. Jesus prays for Himself about eternal life. Verses 2-3. through Let's look at that real quickly. It says this, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we look at this idea of eternal life, it's fascinating. It's declared that Jesus has authority over eternal life. Again, it's a picture for us to understand who Christ is. And yet, the, 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 
The juxtaposition is a cerebral cramp, isn't it? Here you have God in human form. He has submitted Himself. He's like you and I in most respects. And yet through prayer and dependency on the Father, He's given authority over eternal life. This speaks to the character of Christ. This speaks to His dependency on the Father in His incarnate form, His human form. He has the authority over eternal life, yet He will subject Himself to death. And He demonstrates that authority over eternal life through the resurrection and the ascension. It's a picture for you and I to be encouraged that we are able to participate in eternal life. This authority was given to Him by the Father. What kind of authority do you wish that you were given by the Father? Could you imagine if you were given the authority of eternal life? Where souls would reside? And yet Jesus is. Because He's worthy of that authority. He's worthy of that authority. There's an interesting statement here about the eternal life that I want you to focus on just just real briefly. It says, and this is eternal life. Pause. That should get your attention. I mean, eternal life, that's pretty big, right? I don't know of anything bigger. And so when there is grammatically a statement that's, that's compounded this way that says, this is eternal life. This is emphatic voicing. This is wake up, pay attention kind of voicing. This is, <clears throat> there will be a quiz on Friday. What? Oh, now I'm paying attention. So what follows? It says that they know you, the only true God. What does that mean? What does that mean? That they know, by the way, the operative word here is know. It's the qualifier. They, meaning the disciples or you and I. God, meaning Jehovah. Know. Wow, that seems to be the pivot word here, doesn't it? What does that mean? And you've got to dance around a little bit with the language here. This fits so perfectly with what Jesus says in chapter 15 when He talks about abiding, my friends. In your last words, will you have the freedom to ask anything because you know the Father? You see, this word, what it means is to be familiar. To have such an intimate knowledge of the Father that you're familiar. Do you remember when you were playing as a child and you could hear your parents screaming? It's time to come in. And every once in a while you try to run that sloppy excuse of, oh, I didn't know it was you. Didn't work too well, right? Who did you think it was? Oh, I, you know. You knew. I knew. I recognized my parents' voice. The whole neighborhood recognized my parents' voice. Are we there yet? Are we there in such a sense when he says, this is eternal life, that they, meaning us, may know Familiar, recognizable 
This is the essence of abiding. It is the essence of abiding. To know God is eternal life. Familiar, recognize, perceive. Perceive. This should shape my prayers. That as I get ready to request something for myself, let's say I don't have that freedom yet. I don't have that freedom. Because I'm not sure God would approve of what I'm going to ask for. Jesus knew that the Father was going to approve of what He asked for. Because He knew He had been faithful, and you'll hear it coming up over the next couple of weeks. He had been faithful to accomplish what He had been sent to do. You'll hear it in a, in a few moments. He knew that He was going to succeed ultimately in the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension because He knew where His dependency was. He knew he would succeed because God has been faithful to give him everything he needed to succeed to this point. So why would God retreat now? He's not going to. You see, Jesus, when he asked to be glorified, perceived because of his familiarity with the Father that he would answer that prayer. Because he knows the Father. Do you know the Father? It will shape your prayer, if you know the Father. This morning, as we think about those struggles of uh, freedom with prayer, sometimes those that have been around for a long time, we, we pray. I, I was at a pastor's prayer meeting this past Thursday. And I started to wonder if they served a different God. It was kind of crazy. It was a little nuts. I got a little nervous. And... Uh, they were playing to, or playing. They were praying to Father Weegis. Have you guys ever heard anybody pray to Father Weegis? Yeah, and, and 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 so then yeah. Over and over, these these pastors would would start their prayers this way: Father, we just want to make sure that, Father, we just need you to, Father, we just have so many burdens in our life. Father, we just... Why are we praying to Father Weegis? Because we've learned the narrative. Ready? Get ready. I pledge allegiance to the... Right, okay, I, I, enough of that. Uh, God bless... That's really good too. Um, we the people. Well, that's pretty good. I, I would have said in order to form, I wasn't including the United States. I fail. There's a narrative. I was listening to our young people pray as they headed off to camp. Oh my goodness. Lord, we just want to thank you. Help our focus to be on You. Let us be servants. Give us safe travels. I go on and on. Where did they learn that? From us. We have a script. It's called the Father Ouija script. And there's no freedom in that. 
There's no freedom because we have so regulated our prayers to what we've heard, and I'm guilty of it. Freedom is to lay your heart, and I'm learning this stuff from guys like Murray and Ian Bounds. Freedom is to lay your heart wide open just as Jesus did. I don't understand why we keep throwing the word just. It's so limiting. There's no freedom in the word just. It's a limiting word. We have to know the Father. We have to be familiar with Him. We have to abide. And then there's freedom in our prayers. We understand how to pray. We understand that we can ask for things in order that He would be glorified. In closing this morning, Jesus reflects on who He truly is. Verses 4-5 through says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's unpack this. This is fascinating. Jesus reflects back on who he truly is in these last words. He has a freedom. Have you ever jumped the gun on something? Have you ever wanted to get something accomplished? And uh, you know it's coming up, and, but you know... After that is what you really want. Right? And, and so you're kind of getting a little bit ahead of yourself. I don't think Jesus is getting ahead of himself, but this is how I relate to what he's doing here. His mindset is on being reestablished in his glorified form as he always was, even before the creation of the world. Wow. Did we forget who was with us? This is the one who made the world. And I get so familiar with this Jesus who is in the world that I forget that He desires to be at home. He desires... Do you know what that says to me? That the longer someone stays with me when they truly desire to be at home, what does that say to me? That they love me. That they're sacrificing for me. And yet Jesus says in his prayers, he prays for himself. Number one, he's accomplished his work. He's accomplished his work. He desires to be glorified to his pre-incarnate form. To unpack that in my mind is fascinating. It just shows me the, the sacrifice, humility, and love that Jesus demonstrated while he was here on earth. And here's the fascinating thing is, and this is something I learned in studying, is Jesus was thinking this before he went to the cross. He thought about the fact that he's done his work, he's been faithful, and yet I'm thinking, wait, you've got the biggest stuff coming. And it's almost like he's ready for it. He's good to go. Now he's thinking beyond that. I'll be reunited. I'll be back to being in my glorified state. Jesus prays for Himself. He reflects on who He truly is. He is eternal. The magnitude of that is so far-reaching. And when you think about the fact that He is eternal, He is God, and yet He chooses to pray, what does that say to us? He has the freedom to pray. 
He is in a submissive relationship with the Father. He does everything that the Father asks Him to do. And even though what is given to Him as far as being glorified, it's already His. What is He doing? He's demonstrating, now catch this, He's demonstrating to the disciples how you ask. Have you ever felt entitled? I have. Sometimes on a sinful level, I assume too much here. I feel too entitled to get up before you and share the Word of God. But every Sunday morning, every Saturday night, I go through a regimen of prayer like Christ does here. Because I'm not entitled, whereas Christ was entitled. Every day that I get to preach is a gift that is given that I'm not entitled to. You know what my entitlement is? Eternity in heaven with the Lord. That's my entitlement. Because that work was done on the cross. And because of my faith in it, that is my entitlement. Jesus demonstrates to the disciples because they're listening. He demonstrates to the disciples that even though He is entitled to be in His glorified state, He submits to the Father and says, glorify Me that I may glorify You. The magnitude of that is simply that you and I would learn how to ask. Go back and remember, He has said to them no less than four times in this discourse, in this time together, ask and it will be given to you. Ask in My name and He will grant it to you. Ask in My Father's name and you will have it. And so what does Jesus do? He takes something He knows is going to happen anyway and He demonstrates submission. He demonstrates the relationship between Himself and the Father. So why? So that there's a story. A story of redemption. A story of glory to the Father. That's what happens as a result of prayer. And it's inspirational. This morning, are you free to pray? And as we think about the last words, in essence, these were the first words. Because Jesus is entering into His suffering. And as He prepares to enter into His suffering, what does He choose to do? He's done speaking to His disciples. He now begins to pray. He now be- Because everything in this prayer, by the way, is moving forward. It's taking care of and you'll see this over the next two weeks, is taking care of those that he is invested in. And it's praying for them, it's interceding, but he starts with himself. And in his mindset, he's moving forward. So his last words, they're actually his first. May that be our mindset. As we move forward, oh, here we go. As we move forward, let me finish so that my first words will be my last. Let's go back to Erica, shall we? So Erica's standing there, and she's kind of distraught, and I saw that something wasn't copacetic. And everybody else is running to the phones to let their parents know. And so somebody needed my help. I went and I helped them dial because they couldn't figure out how to dial the United States. I wasn't much better. And uh, when I came back, later that night I got an incredible story that glorifies God. See, as I was ripped away by another student, I didn't get to see what else had happened. I saw a glimmer of it, but I didn't understand what I was seeing. And it was relayed to me 
by Erica with a huge smile on her face, giving glory to God. That when she was faced with a crisis, her first words and her freedom in prayer was to ask God, Father, I can't remember my area code. She knew her number because she was used to dialing it. But she didn't know her area code. In the mountains of the Tahumari Indians, do you get the geographical significance of this? And her first thought was, I have the freedom to ask God the impossible. And she said, God, this is really important to my parents. And it's really important to me. I miss them. I don't know how you would do it, but could you please help me learn, figure out whatever it takes that I might be able to get the number to dial my parents. She finished praying that prayer, her last words. She turned around to see a Hispanic family standing behind her. She starts talking with them and they actually share the exact dialect that she knows from her region. Turns out that family lived two miles away from her house and they knew the exact area code. And Erica was able to talk to her parents and her parents were able to see her. And if that doesn't glorify God, I don't know what does. But you see, if Erica didn't feel the freedom to ask that request on her behalf, I wouldn't be able to share that story with people over and over and over and give glory to God. It's okay to pray for yourself. Feel the freedom. But as you do so, do so to the glory of God.